Well, if you have a Bible, let's open up to John chapter 20. We're going to continue on in our over a year-long study of John. We've been working verse by verse through this great gospel account. And if you're wondering, did Dave plan it over a year ago for us to arrive at this text on this day? The answer is yes. We did it. (laughs) So we're going to be in John chapter 20. We're going to look at verses 1 through 18, the great resurrection chapter or the great uh, just account of the resurrection from the gospel of John. And so remember, if you have no idea where uh, John is, feel free to use the table of contents. There's some pew Bibles there. Also, if you do not have a Bible of your own, we've got some blue ESV paperback Bibles. Please grab one. Please write your name in it. Please take it with you. We would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. And if I can help you, if anybody in this church can help you understand how to read and study the Bible on your own and what do I do with that, please let us know. It would be our heart's desire to help you uh, see Jesus and look to his word. So we're going to be in John chapter 20. Remember, uh, the Old Testament says, someone's coming. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel accounts say, someone's here right now. The whole rest of the New Testament says, someone's coming again. Who is that someone? The promised Redeemer, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So as you're turning and opening up to John 20, this past week I saw a video Um, uh, of an old TV news broadcast from the early 60s. It was WMT-TV, Channel 2 out of Iowa. It's kind of one of those videos that kind of passed by on on Facebook or Instagram or whatever it was, and I saw it, and it was literally literally interesting. And and the reason uh, it kind of drew my attention at first is it it was kind of just like an old-school news broadcast. It had all of the requisite components for a TV show of that era, this monotone, matter-of-fact delivery. You know, it seems like all advertisements and news, they kind of all had the same kind of tone and timber in the way that they were explaining things. There was no flashy set. Everybody kind of had a drab suit on. There was really dry wit, dry humor, and it was black and white. But the thing that was really interesting, and the reason that this video struck struck out to me or stuck out to me, is because what it did is it actually showed in real time a live broadcast switching from black and white to color for the very first time. And what you saw was the reporter, his name was Bob Bruner, he got up, you could see him kind of take his microphone off, and the other guy's talking to him the whole time, and the camera pans over, and you see him move onto a different set, put a new microphone on, the cameras are just rolling and they're talking, and all of a sudden they say, we are now excited to switch this over, and you can see this broadcast in live color. And all of a sudden the cameras switched, and this camera fired up for the first time, and there is Bob Bruner in color. It was really just a neat video. And one thing that was really funny is Bob Bruner, he told this really quick kind of dry joke, which was really interesting. You can see this guy in a drab suit and glasses that actually look very much like mine. You know, and he's, he gets up and, I feel doubly honored to have been chosen to be the first one involved in our big change because there are so many much more colorful characters around here than this reporter. That was the joke. And then he just carried on as if nothing had happened. He just kept reporting the news like he always had. And the first commercial color broadcast took place at 4.35 p.m. on Monday, June 25th, 1951, 
when CBS offered an hour-long program entitled Premiere to an ad hoc network of five stations in New York City, Boston, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Washington. But it wasn't until the early 60s that color broadcast kind of really started come, becoming the standard. And what I did, I, I liked that video because it marked a moment in time when everything changed. You knew at that moment it was never going back to the way it was. We had switched from black and white to color. Color TV was here to stay. We were never going back. And you can probably think of similar moments in time like this where a definitive shift happens. You can think of maybe the arrival of the personal computer, the advent of the mobile phone, the first iPhone being introduced, the arrival of the first all-electric car, etc. These moments kind of stand out in time for us because we realize something new has come on the scene and nothing will ever be the same again. I mean, you think about the arrival of the first iPhone. Why in the world am I going to want this phone now that has all these clunky buttons when it's just a nice piece of glass and I just touch it? You're like, ooh, I don't, everything's changed. As we began our study in John on January 10th, 2021, now 15 months later, we arrive at the point in John's gospel and in the history of humanity where absolutely everything changed. We mentioned last week that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic gospels because they give us a similar synopsis of the life and ministry of Jesus. John and his gospel is different because it's distinctly theological in its aim. And what is that aim? It is to prove, so that many would believe, we'll see that at the end of it, that Jesus is the divine Son of God. He's been building his case up until this point. Jesus is the divine Son of God. And again, the debate is settled on the fact that a real man named Jesus walked the streets of first century Jerusalem, that he was considered a great teacher, and he was a leader of a movement. Nobody doubts that. The debate is settled on the fact that a guy named Jesus was nailed to a Roman cross and he died a real death in space and time and was laid in an actual tomb in a real location. Remember last week we saw the historical account of Tacitus, an ancient Roman historian who said this guy named Christus, Jesus, was, was uh, uh, con condemned to death under Pontius Pilate and died on a Roman cross. Over and over again, even as we have seen throughout this gospel account for the past 15 months, the big debate has always raged about whether Jesus really was and is the Son of God. That's where the debate is. And so as, as we look to this text this morning, let me ask you a couple of questions. What if Jesus was really resurrected from the dead in space and time? Would that historical fact change everything for you? Would, you un would your understanding of Jesus go from black and white to color if that were really to be true? I want us to take those questions into the text this morning as we look at John chapter 20 starting in verse 1. Let's give, reading, let's give attention to the reading of God's word. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter, the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. And both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. 
Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, uh, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know what it was, that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. I am grateful for that, and I hope you are. May we receive these words with humility and ask the Lord to take them and help us to receive them by faith. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we do pray that you would take these words, that you would use them and seal them and apply them to our hearts, O Lord. Father, I pray that you would help me to be faithful to the text. Lord, we pray, O Christ, that you would be exalted. You are worthy of worship and we are not. And so, Lord, help us to focus on you. And we pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. As we consider this text this morning, remember last week we talked about uh, Jesus' crucifixion and we saw an all-too-familiar storyline. And that storyline is this. A young upstart idealist challenges the status quo of the ruling class. He He gets crushed by them. His followers go into hiding and eventually the whole thing fades away. Roll credits. And think of all these different other movements in history. Here's what Kent Hughes said in his commentary about kind of this, these moments after the crucifixion. He said, as far as the disciples could see, it was all over. They had come against a blank wall. They had not yet associated these events with Psalm 22. They had not believed it would end like this. And they had not yet grasped the truth of Jesus' prophecies of resurrection. There was nothing left except a recurring sense of utter helplessness and the shame of their denials and desertions. Think about that's the reality as Jesus is laid in the tomb. You can put yourself in the shoes or the the sandals of one of his followers at this moment and think, what just happened? We thought that the kingdom was going to come. We thought that he was different, but yet Rome got a hold of him. And here he is, he's dead and he's in a tomb. But this is what makes this story incredible Because that's not where the story ends, is it? 
Here's what Stephen Um said. He said, the, the resurrection is the truth on which everything else hinges. Without it, Christian ministry is pointless. Personal faith is ineffective. God's character is called into question. Christians are still in need of salvation. Any sense of future hope is removed. And our present experience is meaningless. On the other hand, if Christ did indeed rise from the dead, then the opposite is true. We must all deal with the historical reality of Jesus' resurrection and what that means for the world around us. Remember, just like we talked last week, either Jesus is of infinite importance or of no importance, the only thing he cannot be is moderately important. And we think about what's going on here. For Christians, those of us who trust Christ this morning, this means one big thing for us. That word is rejoicing. If this is true, it's a reason to get up in the morning. It's a reason to have joy. It's a reason to have hope. Because this hope doesn't disappoint us. Let's follow the narrative and see why. No points this morning. We're just going to follow the narrative and apply as we go. Jesus had been crucified on Friday and buried. That's day one. Rested in the tomb on Saturday, day two. And verse one begins early in the morning on Sunday, the third day. Jesus had spoken of this earlier, Luke 9.22. Jesus said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. The Synoptic Gospels mention multiple women going together to the tomb to help further prepare the hastily buried body of Jesus with more fragrant spices. We talked about this last week, that Jesus was taken down on Friday. The next day was this high feast day of Passover. And that if they had left him on the cross, it would have made the land ceremonially impure. And so they were trying to get Jesus down off the cross, put in the tomb as quickly as they can. He was hastily buried. But now we see them going back after this great high feast day to go back and tend to the body of Jesus. And we see John only mentions Mary Magdalene because she was kind of seen as the de facto leader of the group. But in verse 2, you see Mary says, we do not know where they have laid him, implying, as the synoptics say, that it was a group. We're told that this was the first day of the week, and this became the traditional gathering day of Christians to worship, the Christian Sabbath, i.e. today, Sunday morning, to coincide with the day Jesus was resurrected. In verse 2, we see Mary runs to find Peter and John, who is the other disciple. He's referred to himself in kind of this third kind of person way throughout. And so we believe it's him. And she refers to someone else taking the body of Jesus. They say, they have taken his body. And it's, it's not that hard to understand Mary's reaction. Why? Remember, this happened in real space and time. And grave robbery in this time was very common. And this seemed like the most plausible option given that Jesus was laid in a wealthy man's tomb. We saw that last week with Joseph of Arimathea. Grave robbery was was common. And so, here's what Sproul said. He said, an empty tomb could have indicated many things, and the option that would have been last on the list would have been a resurrection. Just as today, when people died, they almost always stay dead. Even those closest to Jesus miss the full implications of his promise to rise again. You see it just kind of flying over their head. And Matthew records that Roman guards had been posted by Pilate and the Pharisees at the tomb because the Pharisees were worried that Jesus' disciples would fake his resurrection. 
They said, we're afraid. Remember, the, the Pharisees have been constantly at odds with Jesus' disciples all the way back in John 1. And all of a sudden, they're saying, we're afraid that the disciples are so in on this that they're going to come steal the body of Jesus and fake his resurrection. So we need you to post some guards there, which they did. Now you think, we ask the question like, why? Why, would, why were the Pharisees so worried about this? As Sproul said, when people died, they almost always stayed dead. But as we know, almost is the operative word. Matthew also records an earthquake and the angel of the Lord coming to roll away the stone. And these battle-hardened Roman guards were so terrified that they passed out. It said they acted as if they were dead. But I don't want you to miss the historical importance of who the first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection were. They were women. And you think about the, it seems like such a small detail to us now, but if you were making this story up in the first century A.D., you would not have relied on the testimony of women to validate the claim because in the ancient Near East, their testimony was not admissible in court. But the amazing thing about this text and the amazing thing about the Scripture is that the testimony of women is celebrated here. The first eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women. And we say, that's great, as the, as the Scripture just celebrates. And look in verses 3 and 4. Peter and John rushed to see for themselves. Did you pick up on the little detail that John made sure to include the fact that he beat Peter in a foot race? I read that and kind of chuckled. I'm like, we never really do grow up, do we? So you see, you know, Peter and the other guy, they ran, but the other guy won. You know, made, sure he, made sure he included that there so we know who won the foot race. And in verses 5 through 7, John shares some details about what he saw. He saw an empty tomb with burial linens in it. And remember in John eleven forty four, with the resurrection of Lazarus, his body was wrapped and bound in linen strips and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus actually said, go and unbind him. If that gives you a feel for kind of how the body was, was prepared. And John tells us in verse 7 that the grave clothes were in good order and arranged. He said that they were folded and placed to the side. Now I want you to think, if someone, it seems like such an insignificant detail, doesn't it? But if someone had hastily stolen the body, remember with Roman guards outside, they would not have carefully removed, folded, and arranged these seemingly insignificant things, would they? No, they would have grabbed it and ran. So it seems like such a small detail. But this very fact, again, shows that something else has happened. John, uh, verses 8 through 10, John tells us that everyone was in shock from what they saw. And they wrestled with the implications of what they saw and their faith was challenged. It seemed so unlikely that the simplest explanation, which was grave robbery, had occurred. And they, they start asking the question, was what seemed impossible, this resurrection, actually what had occurred? The simplest explanation is always the best, right? But you look at this and they go, this doesn't make any sense. And so Luke 24, 12 tells us that Peter went home marveling at what had happened. And John tells us that he believed, verse 8, but that everyone involved still had not put all the pieces together in verse 9, and so they go home. Now, let's pause for just a second and take a mental break here and ask a couple of questions. As you sit here this morning and you ponder the evidence, which is historic, which is public, and which is voluminous, how is your faith being challenged? 
Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe the words of the Old Testament prophets who pointed to Christ's arrival hundreds of years ago as they said in the Old Testament, someone's coming, someone's coming, this promised Messiah is coming. Do you believe the eyewitness testimony that is given to us this morning? The Bible actually is a historical document. We see that the eyewitnesses to the resurrection was not just this crowd, but there were 500 others and many, many others, many of whom who were named. So go ask them for yourself. As you sit here and you ponder, do you believe that Jesus really is the Son of God? And that he, was, he died a real death and was buried in real space and time and then came back to life in real space and time. Again, it's either of infinite importance or it's of no importance. The only thing it can't be is moderately important. You can't just shrug your shoulders through it and go, yeah, who cares? Has your understanding of Jesus switched from black and white to full color? Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 6, that Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And Paul challenged his original audience to go and investigate. I've told the story about Lee Strobel before, who was an atheist journalist who set out to try to debunk the resurrection of Christ. And here's what he said after all of his striving and all of his work. He said, I went to a psychologist friend and said, if 500 people claim to see Jesus after he died, is it possible that this was just a hallucination? The psychologist said, hallucinations are an individual event. If 500 people have the same hallucination, it's a bigger miracle than the resurrection. (laughs) Again, here's what Strobel said after wrestling and struggling with this, setting out to debunk the resurrection of Christ. Here's what he said. In short, I didn't become a Christian because God promised I would have an even happier life than I had as an atheist. He never promised any such thing. Indeed, following him would inevitably bring divine demotions in the eyes of the world. Rather, I became a Christian because the evidence was so compelling that Jesus really is the one and only Son of God who proved his divinity by rising from the dead. Verses 1 and 10, 1 through 10, the evidence builds. You see the eyewitness testimony. But did you notice a little shift that happened in verse 11? The tone kind of changes. The scene kind of shifts a little bit. The shift happens in the text as the disciples head home and Mary is left weeping with grief at the mouth of the tomb. And Mary, in verse 12, Mary looks into the tomb and sees these two angels sitting on this kind of like hewn stone ledge where the body would have been placed. There's one at the head and one at the feet. In verse 13, the angel asks her what seems to be a very silly question. Woman, why are you weeping? Implying that tears are not called for. And again, we've talked about before, this term woman is actually an honorific. This is not a talking down to. It's very similar to how we say ma'am. It's a respectful honorific. Ma'am, Mrs., woman, what are you weeping about? Why are you weeping? Mary responds to the angel's question with a very similar response to verse 2, doesn't she? They've taken his body and we don't know where. Then in verse 14, an unexpected encounter takes place because Jesus shows up in person. And we're told that she didn't recognize him at first. And remember, resurrection was still kind of last on the possibilities, right? We're thinking grave robber. We say it must have been the gardener. I mean, we're just kind of going through the checklist here. Physical resurrection was kind of way down on the list. So she's still wrestling with what's going on. 
Her eyes were full of tears. She's probably not very coherent due to grief and weeping. And she sees this person and is like, who are you? In verse 15, Jesus asks her the same question that the angels ask, but then adds something else. Whom are you seeking? Mary mistakes him for the gardener, hoping that he knew what had happened to Jesus. Oh, but verse 16. Do you see what happened in verse 16? Here's what Sproul said. Jesus put an end to her grief and her confusion, her entire devastation, with one simple word. Her name. Mary. Mary. Something about his voice revealed him to Mary. She knew his voice. And we'll remember, if you remember back in our long discourse through John, John chapter 10 with Jesus' Good Shepherd discourse. Jesus said, when he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Mary, Mary. Mary responds with an honorific of her own. Rabone, teacher. And what happens then is an explosion of joy. You're back. It's you. It's you. You're right here. It's you. It's probably the only thing that she could come up with as she came to grips with the reality of Jesus' resurrection. Rabboni was the first thing that came to mind. Now in verse 17, some scholars have speculated wildly about this verse, saying that like Jesus' body was in some kind of like metamorphosing state where he says, woman, don't cling to me, that somehow he was like this hologram that you know, was kind of coming into, into physical state again. Just wild speculation. I think the simplest reason is the best one. Mary was hanging on to Jesus for dear life because she was afraid of losing him again. And Jesus reassures her that they still have time together before he returned to his father. In Acts chapter 1 verse 3 tells us that 40 days passed between the resurrection and his ascension. And Jesus gave Mary the glorious task of going and telling others about his resurrection. And we see in verse 18 that Mary joyfully obeyed Jesus and told the others, I have seen the Lord. And she had begun the day in grief and confusion, and she went to tell others about the empty tomb, and now she left that very same tomb with the joyous news of Jesus' return. And we think this is our call to go and tell others about the risen Christ. I have seen the Lord. Now, if you think for a second as we close this thing down, you're like, why should I care? Okay, so what? Here's the so what portion. Here's what David Garland said. He said, resurrection means endless hope, but no resurrection means hopeless end. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. Here's what Paul wrote. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here's what Paul says. Here's in a nutshell what he says. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then everything we're doing this morning is a sham. That what I'm doing up here right now is absolutely futile. It's in vain. 
And we should all pack this thing up and go home right now. Many in the world would love to see that happen. Love to see the church be frustrated to pack up and go home. Paul says, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then we have no hope in this life. What that means is your sin and my sin has not been dealt with on the cross, and we still stand under the wrath of a holy God. Our sin debt has not been paid for. It means that it's not finished. Oh, but isn't it good news? Isn't it good news? Verse 20 of what Paul is talking about. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection changed absolutely everything. And it's absolutely essential to our present faith and future hope. Don't believe me? Let me read you a few verses. All I'm hoping and praying and asking is that if you're here and you're skeptical about Christ, that this might go from black and white to color, maybe for the first time. That if you are here and you have been walking with Christ faithfully for years, that your faith would be strengthened. You would remember the reality of Christ's resurrection and the hope that it brings. If you are here and you are struggling and your life is hard, I want you to remember and know that Christ walks with you and that he sees you and that he's your good shepherd and that all that the Father has given him, no one can snatch them out of his hand. I want you to have hope in the resurrection. The real reality, historical reality, not a fairy tale, not a fantasy, not something that we wish that happened so that we can feel better about ourselves, but the real true reality of Christ's physical resurrection from the dead that changed absolutely everything. Other than that, I don't want anything else. Just those things. Okay? Hear these words, Romans 6, 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. 1 Peter 1, 3 to 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, so what? Let's land the plane. Resurrection hope is a living biblical hope. Remember, biblical hope is not, I hope it rains. Biblical hope is being certain of certain things. We are given, we are given to fear. We are fearful, forgetful, sinful people. But by grace, through faith in Christ alone, we have this living biblical hope. We can hold fast to certain things. We can be certain of certain things. Is this your living hope? Is this the joy of your heart today? Life might feel like the mouth of that empty tomb right now. As you may face crushing sickness or broken relationships or financial struggles, whatever it is. Life may feel like the mouth of that empty tomb at this moment, full of grief, confusion, hardship, uncertainty, broken relationships. Life might just feel flat for you right now. Your spiritual life might feel flat. It might feel like that black and white, monotone, dull kind of newscast. Your life might feel like that right now. But passages like this one remind us that the empty tomb changed absolutely everything. That there's hope in Christ. There's hope in the gospel of grace. Not just wishful thinking. Not blind, ignorant faith. 
real, lasting certainty. Here's what Keller said. The Christian hope exceeds such quavering, wishful thinking in every way. The biblical word elpida, translated as the weaker verb hope, means profound certainty. A living hope is a sure and steadfast hope. Christ died a real death on a real cross, was buried in a real tomb, and really rose victorious over death in real space and time. Why? So that your sin could really be put away and that you could really walk in God's love and have a real and living hope in this life regardless of the circumstances. That you could be certain of His love. You could be certain of His grace. If you are in Christ, think about this. If you are in Christ, your name was written in the Lamb's book of life in eternity past and is sealed in heaven through the shed blood of Christ into eternity future. And there is nothing that this world can do to snatch you out of the shepherd's hand. Nothing. You are in Christ to the end. At just the right time, Christ called your name. And you heard His voice and you believed If you do not know Christ as Lord this morning, do you hear Him calling to you? Calling to you. He said, my sheep, they hear my voice and they know me. If so, come and talk to me or one of the elders after the service. Let's pray together. Let's talk about that. Do you hear the shepherd calling to you? Do you hear His voice? Resurrection equals hope, which equals joy, which equals comfort, which equals courage. Let me give you an illustration of what this looks like, and we're done. Want an illustration of what this looks like? It's an old illustration, but a good one. And if you're anything like me, you forgot what you had for breakfast yesterday, so this might be the first time you're hearing it. What's this look like in our lives? How does this change everything? A little boy and his father were driving down a country road on a beautiful spring afternoon, and suddenly out of nowhere, a bumblebee flew in the car. You ever had that happen to you? (gasps) There's a wasp. There's a bee. It flies into the car. Since the little boy was deathly allergic to bee stings, he became petrified with fear. His father quickly reached out, grabbed the bee, squeezed it in his hand, and then released it. But as soon as he let it go, the young son became frantic once again as it buzzed by the boy. And the father sensed his son's terror. Once again, he reached out his hand, but this time he pointed to the hand, and there stuck in his skin was the stinger of the bee. He said, you see this? You see this? This means you don't need to be afraid anymore because I've taken the sting for you. The Christian does not need to be afraid of death because Christ has taken the sting out of death and sin. Ladies and gentlemen, the gospel, the gospel, that's it. We no longer have to fear because Christ has taken the sting out of death. It's finished. It's done. And we trust Him by faith. Isn't that good? Isn't that good news? That's the reason to get up in the morning. As we said before, 1 Corinthians 15, when the, imperishable, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God that he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that the Lord, uh, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Okay, so why should we care? If you're here and you trust Christ by faith, i got some good news for you. Your sin debt has been dealt with. 
That empty tomb is a, is a resurrection hope. As we have been died, as we have been united in a death like his, we will also be united in a resurrection like his. And so what is the call? Trust Christ. Look to Christ. Don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. Trust in him. Trust at what he has done. If you are here and you do not know the Lord, number one, thank you for being here. We're so glad you're here. Really? But understand the reality on the ground. That if you do not have a mediator whose name is Jesus Christ the Lord, you will face a wrathful God on your own without a mediator. And that is a terrifying thing. And you think, it can't be that bad. You have absolutely no idea. Flee to Christ. Look to Christ. Trust in Christ. Today could be the day of salvation. Run to Christ and trust in Him alone. Come and talk to me. I'm easy to find. I'm in this really bright jacket. Let's talk. What I want you to do is rest in the gospel. Trust in the gospel. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the resurrection. The amazing thing about what we're doing this morning is literally because of what Christ has done. Every Sunday when we gather together on the Lord's Day is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ. It's all we got. Every single Sunday we say, praise you, O Lord, that you walked out of the grave. That's it. Christ took the sting for you. So that you could have an eternity with him. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that every bit of it's true. So we consider the reality of, resur- of the resurrection. It's so easy to come to this with a skeptical and sinful heart and a cynical heart and go, yeah, right. Yeah, right. But help us to remember, O oh Lord, that you walked out of the grave, that you were really dead. Everybody knew it. You were really dead. But yet, by the power of the Spirit, you were resurrected and you walked out of the tomb. It changed absolutely everything. Life went from black and white to color. The plan of redemption was accomplished and finished. And now, because of you walking out of the tomb, those of us who trust in Christ, we have a resurrection hope. And that hope will never fail us. It will never disappoint. It will never go away because it is not rooted and grounded in our effort. It is not rooted and grounded in the amount of faith that we have. It is rooted and grounded in the object of our faith, who is Christ and Christ alone. And so, Lord, we thank you that you took the sting of death for us so that we could know your smile and your mercy and your grace. And may we grapple with that this morning. We pray and ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.